New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today asked the question, how do we find the strength to not look away from all that is breaking our hearts? And in her most recent book, she looks at the elements of erosion, erosion that is shaping the physical landscape of our nation due to climate change. She is also examining erosion we face in democracy, science, compassion, and trust. She reminds us that love and beauty is felt in the chaos, in the heartbreak, and in the intimacy of family. She also reminds us that water can crack stone. And that's what we'll be exploring today, how to be soft, yielding, and a relentless presence that will crack the stone of prevailing institutions that put profits above preservation of our public lands and the open space of democracy with our guest, Terry Tempest Williams. Terry Tempest Williams is a naturalist, essayist, and a staunch defender of the environment. Her work is widely taught and anthologized around the world. A member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, she currently is the writer-in-residence at Harvard Divinity School and divides her time between Cambridge, Massachusetts and Castle Valley, Utah. She's the award-winning author of many books, including The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. Refuge, an unnatural history of family and place. Finding beauty in a broken world. When women were birds. And erosion, essays of undoing. Join us for the next hour as we explore the essence of erosion and evolution with our guest, Terry Tempest Williams. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Terry, welcome. I am so thrilled to be here, Justine. As I said to you, uh, for me, a book is not a book until it's in your hands. Oh, my goodness. Well, I've just been immersed. I feel like I've been having a long visit with you now, and now here you are in person. Thank you so much for being here. Well, you reside in my heart, and I don't think you'll mind if I share this with the listeners. I mean, the gift you gave me coming in 
of this exquisite owl shawl. I feel like I'm wrapped in feathers, and oh. it's your embrace. Thank you so much. We'll t- we've taken a picture, and our listeners will have to see it. So uh, you look so gorgeous, wrapped in the, in your one of your favorite birds. And well, I think when you say, you know, how do we find the strength to not look away from all that is breaking our hearts? Um, it's so clear to me that it's about community, and you are at the heart of mine. So thank you mm-hmm. for this embrace mm-hmm. and this moment that we can share the things that matter to us. Well, it's my honor, truly. Last time we were together, I looked it up. It was right after all the tribes came together with the government uh, in an extraordinary moment of agreement between like various native tribes and and the government and everybody. It was just a huge endeavor to look at Bear's Ears as a national monument. And later that year, we were together in June that year when Mm -hmm. that happened. And later that year, Obama was president. Yes. In December, he wrote it out as a designation of a national monument. And I was clapping. I know you were clapping. We were just feeling so full. It was a historic moment. And as you say, um, the Hopi, the Diné, Navajo, Zuni, uh, Mountain Ute, Urey Ute, uh, five tribes in the Four Corners area uh, said these lands, Bears Ears, are a sacred gathering place. It is where the bones of our ancestors are buried. They, they said, this is where our ceremonies are held, where our medicines are found. When on any given day they would tell us, you can hear the voices of our ancestors on the wind. And on that day, as you remind us, you know, December 28th, 2016, President Obama heard their pleas. And through the 1906 Antiquities Act, established the Bears Ears National Monument, 1.3 million acres of high desert terrain, uh, red rock canyons, pinyon, juniper forests, and these two beautiful buttes known as Bears Ears, uh, raised up toward the sky. It was a, a handshake across history. It was a newfound trust between the tribes and the federal government. It was a commitment made that traditional knowledge would be interwoven with the science of the federal agencies, such as the Bureau of Land Management, the National Park Service, the National Forest Service. It was revelatory, and there was celebration all around. There were also people that felt betrayed what mm-hmm. I call the frontier Mormons in San Juan County, and senators like Orrin Hatch. And they didn't forget what happened with Grand Staircase Escalante in 1996, nor were they content with letting this stand. And Orrin Hatch immediately, um, with Donald Trump, um, put forth the idea that you can undo this. And you'll remember that um, Secretary Zinke... Uh, said in April of 2017. He was appointed the... uh, Secretary of Interior. Yes. um, They did a study based on 
President Trump's recommendation, which came from Orrin Hatch, that any national monument that had been established from 1996 to the present that was over 100,000 acres had to be reviewed. In the end, it was bookended by Grand Staircase Escalante in 1996 and Bears Ears National Monument in 2016. And on December 4th, um, we will never forget that Donald Trump came to Utah for two hours, had never set foot on these lands, had no interest in these lands, only as real estate, and gutted Bears Ears National Monument by 85% and Grand Staircase Escalante by 50%. And it is now in the courts. Um, the tribes are continuing their advocacy. Um, the elders are in ceremony. And management plans are under discussion um, with some dispute. So we'll see what happens. But meanwhile, Justine... Um, these lands are now open for business. And we are watching um, the continuation of fossil fuel development, of uh, the re-engagement of uranium mines that have affected tens of thousands of Native families in, and Anglos alike um, with rates of cancer that are astonishing, fouling the water still. Um, this is ongoing. And I think you also mentioned, I wasn't sure if I remember if it was Utah or Wyoming, which is one of the largest coal-producing places Wyoming. in the world. Yeah, if and Wyoming were a, a nation, it would be ranked fifth as the largest coal-producing uh, And we area. think of, in the U.S., we think of Appalachia as the coal right. mining. But and this is in the world. Huge, yeah. And that's in the world. And yet, you know, they know... Um, Having lived in Wyoming, you know, there's great discussion that this is a dying industry, that they have got to seek other means of energy, whether it's solar or wind in a state like Wyoming. Um, so we're in transition, but the fossil fuel industry is not going out without um, a last desperate um, devastating gasp. Well, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of that a park game uh, at a amusement park game called Whack a Mole. Right, right, right. That you 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 win over here and then it pops up over there. And so going back to our original question, how do we keep ourselves open and in in hope and active in the face of these devastating actions. My mantra continues to be engagement is a prayer. And, you know, the last 10 years really working closely with um, tribal members, especially in an organization called Utah Diné Bikea, that's what they continue to teach us. And I, I see how hard they're working. I see what they're doing in their own communities. I see the power of the women. I see what the elders and um, the medicine people are doing, and the youth. And, you know, we see what our youth are doing around this country, around the world, in terms of climate justice. Um, you know, this is not a time... Um, I mean, we all experience despair. There's no question. I mean, there are times... 
I will be honest, where I wonder if I can get up in the morning. But in those moments, I'm aware of the limits of my own imagination. And imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration builds community. And in community, I believe anything is possible. Um, even a community of two. You know, I think that's what a marriage is. That's what a friendship is. But I, I see the power of communities all over the world and the engagement as a prayer and that things are shifting just at the same time when we wonder if collapse is imminent. You know, look at our democracy right now. Um, we're in um, the throes of impeachment with a president who not only is above the law, but disregards the law. On the other hand, you know, I think there's there's great participation and awareness happening. So it's, I think that's part of what I was trying to embrace and look at with erosion. Erosion in the land and erosion of democracy, of decency, of and compassion, I, I, of science, of all of these things. I think you point out in erosion, let's say, of the land, it reveals something. It's so beautiful. I mean, yeah. I live in an erosional landscape, and I'm so aware that what is whittled, weathered, and worn away is as beautiful as what remains. You know, I remember, Justine, when Brooke and I went to the Grand Canyon. I'd never been. Let's stop right there for just a moment. And yes. We're, we're on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and we'll come back to that. I want to remind our listeners, and I'm here with... Terry Tempest Williams, and she is the author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, coyoteclan.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams, and she is the author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing. And we're just talking about you and your husband, Brooke, are right visiting the Grand Canyon for the first time. You had not well, seen it. Well, he was appalled that I had never seen it. You know, I got married at 19, Justine. It gets younger and younger as I get older and older. But, <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in a family who made their living on the land, laying oil and gas pipe, uh, water lines, sewage lines, so forth. And my father felt the land, it all looked the same. And so why would you go to the Grand Canyon when this is all around us? So when Brooke found out I'd never seen it, he just went, well, this is, this is not acceptable. So we went to the North Rim. 
Um, he blindfolded me, led me out to the edge, took off the blindfold, and I could not believe what was before me. And I looked at him and I said, why didn't someone tell me about the Grand Canyon? And he goes, Terry, you know, I think people have talked about the Grand Canyon before. (laughs) But what I really meant was it wasn't what remained that moved me. It was everything that had been carried away Yes, through wind, water, and time and the mighty Colorado River. And I think erosion can be a beautiful thing. And one of the things I love about the definition of erosion, which is what is whittled, worn, and weathered away is as beautiful as what remains, is it, it's associated with movement. Weathering is, is the taking away, but erosion um, creates motion. So particles are carried by the wind. You know, sediments are, are flowing down river why the Colorado River runs red in the spring. And I feel that the erosion we're experiencing in this country, the erosion of democracy, decency, um, the erosion of science, the erosion of truth, something is being created as a movement. And I, I think the pendulum will swing back. I really believe that we as a people will um, demand that climate change is real. Don't you feel that it's... And to act accordingly, and act, I and Of course, and act accordingly. And don't you feel that it's a... We notice it better if we notice it together. It's beautiful. There's something about standing with others. And, and they, not just um, those who agree with us. Oh, you know, I think... That's tough. <laughs> that's one of the things where, you know... We see the left, we see the right, um, neither side are listening. I look at our own dinner table, you know, around <laughs> Thanksgiving and the holidays. Um, but what does it mean to really listen to one another? And where is the agreement point? And I really believe there is one. What is the line that, that binds us together rather than tears us apart? And that's what I'm interested in. And most often, Justine, I find that through story that if we really listen to what one's origin stories are or where one comes from or, you know, the the house you showed me before we started um, speaking on the air, you know, what what brings us together as women who were raised in Alabama and Utah? You know, to me, that's the beginning point, and that's what I'm interested in. And living in rural Utah, you know, with neighbors that where we don't see eye-to-eye politically. We do share a love of the land. You did, uh, when you were teaching at some point, you um, developed a course. It was called Weather Reports. Yes. Tell us about that project and what, what it revealed. That was at the University of Wyoming in the creative writing program. And my students, I was there for a year, And my students wanted to write outside the classroom. They wanted to go out into the landscape that they were part of. And it was their idea that we do weather reports where we identify seven communities that are affected by energy, by coal, by coal bed methane development, by oil and gas, whether it's in the Wind Rivers in towns like Pinedale or coal bed methane, which is in the Powder River Basin, or coal in 
a town like Gillette or where the financial basis is in a town like Casper or on Indian lands in Laramie. And that's what we did. And um, it was... It was a form that we used on Friday night. We would go to a neutral space, usually a library or a community center. Um, the student would give a reading. I would introduce um, the students. We created a circle, and community members would share stories, opening with the question, what keeps you up at night? There was one moment, and sometimes it went until midnight, I remember in Pinedale, Wyoming, when the librarian at the very end, it was 12.30 in the morning, she said, you know, sometimes I wake up and I think Wyoming will just be one big hole of excavation. But there was a, a moment in Casper, Wyoming, and a man walked in, large man, dressed in a suit, a belt buckle the size of a, a dinner plate um, with an oil rig, it was the state senator, Kit Jennings, very powerful. Everyone knew he was in the pockets of the coal bed methane company. He sat down. Um, each person spoke of their name, spoke about what kept them up at night, what were their concerns, what the weather was. And when the microphone reached him, he said, what keeps me up at night is dippy hippie gatherings like this. And then he might as well have had a shotgun pointed at me and said very vile things, that I didn't belong there, that I should go back home where I belonged, et cetera, et cetera. And we all just listened to him. And then he started criticizing the students, and they listened to him. And then he realized there was not going to be a confrontation, but we were listening. And then he said, after all his vitriol, I was just a kid that was viewed as white trash. And then he told his story of alienation and how no one paid attention to him, of what it meant to grow up white and poor in the outback of Wyoming. And he became real, not in anyone's pocket, but the presence of story. And he stayed the whole night and we had dinner after. That's what I'm talking about. And I've not shared this publicly, but... What was interesting is that when he was up for election, and believe me, I was no fan of his politically, but personally, I appreciated him. And I recognized him as a member of my own family who was also in the extractive industry. And the head of the, one of the leaders of the Democratic Party in Wyoming said, we know you have that tape of Kit, Jennings firing at you and the students. And we know of the lies that he told that night. We know you have that on tape. Can we have the tape? Because that will defeat him. And the students and I said no. That was in the privacy of story and sacred space. And we didn't give it to them. They were very upset. Um, but I think... That's where my loyalties lie. You know, what do we share as human beings that bypasses rhetoric and pierces the heart and reminds us what binds us together? And that's where I think we really need um, to cultivate spaces where that can occur. 
Well, I think that that's just so powerful, and that is one of, when you're doing circle like that, it is a sacred place, and things do not leave, go outside that no. circle, you know, that, that we don't use it to the detriment of anyone in that circle, Right, and that's, that's I guess you would say bad karma. <laughs> well, you know, and that's what was so powerful about what the students did, is that they did get the weather reports, which were community reports. And I know that that you you talk. I think it was in Casper. You also went to like that's where there are all these bars in Casper, and you you t- you talked to these young men, who were working the rigs, and and that was actually in Riverton. Oh, Riverton, right? And. It was it was amazing because there were the white bars and then there were the Indian bars. And the students, we went to both. And two very, very different worlds. Um, but in both cases, life was expendable for different reasons. And again, you know, this is where empathy occurs. Again, stories were told. Um, and, you know, what's a life worth on the rig? $10,000. When someone, someone like Colton Bryant that Alexander Fuller wrote about... Um, he was early 20s, was killed. The head of the company showed up in the hospital before he died and gave the family a check for $10,000. And that's what it was worth or something. It's amazing. And you, and talk about environmental injustice. You know, in Utah, you look at the expense of lives in terms of the uranium mines. And the tens of thousands of uranium workers that are dead or dying now of cancer. And, and that this administration wants to ignite that industry again. And I, and I know another thing that's really important to you is the night sky. And all of this extractive kind of activity is is well lit and it just it's like these big cities in the middle of this wilderness. Yeah. And and it just obscures whether it's on the base of the Wind Rivers in Wyoming or on the edge of Hovenweep National Monument in southern Utah. It's a very different landscape. And you know, if a raven's point of view matters to us, what what would be seen is um, a system of roads and frack lines and um, flares at night, and during the day it looks like an exposed nervous system. Terry, why does wilderness matter? I mean, all right, so somebody who lives in the city might say, well, okay, though I live with roads and lights and everything. Why not you? Why, why, why does wilderness matter? It's a great question, Justine. And, you know, what we, what we have to say is, and that is so important to remember, is, you know, before there were public lands, and now we have 640 million acres of public lands in the public trust that belong to all American citizens. But before they were public lands, they were tribal lands. But what I'm seeing now is um, Native people, Indigenous people in this country, alongside conservationists, alongside rural communities, alongside lawmakers, are saying our public lands, wild lands, national parks, monuments, national forests, all of these natural areas on you know, many of them adjacent to tribal lands, 
it is imperative that they be protected because of the carbon that they hold. So that now that's like very practical. Very practical. Um, over half of our carbon emissions come from public lands, federal lands. And if we continue drilling at the rate we are drilling now with this excess, then you know carbon emissions are just going to keep rising. So we'll talk about that in a moment. I'm here with Terry Tempest-Williams, and she is the author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, coyoteclan.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams, and she is the author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing. Terry, there are some bright spots. I want to mention one uh, that that you go into length. Uh, this is a wonderful person, uh, Willie Gray Eyes. Mm. And we're talking about a rural part of Utah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Utah. And he ran for the local county seat. It's an amazing story. And, you know, shortly after Donald Trump gutted Bears Ears by 85%, you know, with a name like Tempest, I was irate (laughs) and angry. And I know that's not healthy. And I went down to visit Willie Gray Eyes, who at that time was chair of Utah Today Bikea. And I said, Willie, what do you do with your anger? And he looked at me and he said, Terry, it can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. And I I think about that every day. And coming from Willie, I can't tell you what that means. You know, Willie is an incredible community organizer. His car has 800,000 miles and it's recognized all over the state and in the Four Corners area. He has been a lifelong advocate of health care, education, food, um, security for the elderly in Indian country on the Navajo Reservation, in particular Utah Navajo specifically. He's beloved um, by his own people. He, he recognized that San Juan County, one of the largest counties in the United States, had been racially gerrymandered. And he filed suit with the state of Utah and won the case that, in fact, it was. When he saw that open space of democracy open, he realized he had an obligation to stand inside it, to, to fill that space. He ran for county commission, con- commissioner, there are three. He won, as did um, another native, uh, Mary Boy, and it became for the first time in history in the state of Utah a native majority. The frontier Mormons, that I will call that, were furious, and Kelly Laws, who ran against 
Willie Gray Eyes said publicly, I will not concede. This is an illegitimate election by an illegitimate candidate. Willie Gray Eyes is not a resident of the state of Utah. Can you imagine? And here he and his family have lived at the base of Navajo Mountain in Utah for generations. The court case ensued. I was there. It was in January last year, 2019. It was a wicked cold day. The courthouse was packed with largely white Mormon people, my own people, of whom I'm still a part. And it was a judge who had just been called by Trump, extremely conservative. Willie's defense, instead of, you know, his voting records, instead of all of the community work he's done, instead of testimonies on his character, Willie's sole defense was, I am a resident of Utah because my umbilical cord is buried here. I mean, you can imagine the guffaws in the state of Utah and in the court and among the the attorneys and the judge. But as his case was revealed on his side after huge attacks, desperate attacks, compelling attacks, that he was not a resident of the state of Utah, he won his case. And the most conservative of judges in his reply said, Willie Gray Eyes is as deep a resident as any of us. And if we all could assume the same kind of notion of dwelling in place that Willie Gray Eyes, we would be better people. Exactly. It was astonishing. And I find that more than hopeful. I find it transformative. It is, and kind of a coda to that story that you write about is that during some really big snowstorm, a fellow commissioner, I think he was white and Mormon. Yes, he was. Maybe you can... It was so beautiful. Um, Bruce Adams, who's been a commissioner for, for over a decade or so, called Willie after you know, the trial, and said, Willie, I'm calling because I'm concerned about you and your community. How are the roads out there? And Willie said it was the first time. You know, so when Willie says it can no longer be about anger, it has to be about healing, you know, I think that that this story is indicative. And, you know, I, I think we're eroding and evolving at once, And we need not lose hope. We just need to know where it dwells. And again, I believe it dwells in community, in deep listening, and and in the idea that we have to forge different types of relationships. Now, I don't want to paint a false picture either, Justine, because in this last election in November, there were those in San Juan County who still are furious that it isn't about healing for them. It is about take down and take over. And they brought forth a bill, it might as well have been called a segregation bill, that they wanted to divide San Juan County into white San Juan County and Indian San Juan County. It lost, luckily, but only by 100 votes. Well, there we are. I mean, it's... Perseverance is a word that comes to me. And you just keep working. And I think it's that idea, engagement, 
is a prayer. And, and again, I feel like it's not even for me about hope. It's, you know, and as a writer, there was one point in working on these essays in erosion, do I have to be a hopeful writer or can I be an evolving one? You know, does this have to be a hopeful story or an engaging one? I think it's about how do we tell the truth of our lives and see where we are for the what is and what we can become and where we have come from. Exactly. And I know that there's one part of the book, we mentioned this in an earlier interview, Tim D. Christopher, and how he went to prison for leasing some oil. It was an act of, of civil disobedience in bidding up the leases for fair market value. Right. So, and he and served there's in a federal whole, prison for two years. A whole big story about that. But one of the things that you bring up in that essay of your conversation with him, he makes a comment, uh, something like, what we are lacking in this whole movement is grieving. We have not grieved. And it just really struck me in my heart. There was something true about that, and that's what you talk about. When we open the program, you, you in our conversation, you talk about um, in the face, you know, being standing in the face of heartbreak. And so say something about that grieving process and why that's important. I so appreciate you bringing this up. Grief is love. And I think as long as we remember that, that those pangs, true physical pains we feel, that is love. That is what love looks like. That is what love feels like. And even in our grief, especially in our grief, um, we are embraced by that love. My father called not long ago. um, His son, my brother, Dan Dixon Tempest, hung himself on... July 27th, um, 2018. And my father called and he said, we just have to stare it down. And I said, what? (laughs) You know, (laughs) what? And he said, grief. I finally figured it out. We just have to stare it down. Now that's my father, the Marlboro man without the cigarette. You know, the man (laughs) who can, um, who is in control of everything And yet he knows he's in control of nothing, especially his emotions. And that for him was how he could embrace the loss, the death, um, the heartbreak of his son's death by suicide. We have to stare it down. You know, for me, it's how do we have the courage to not look away? You mentioned in an earlier interview, we really go into detail about when you went uh, to, to Spain, and you sat with this painting by Bosch. And just the Garden of Earthly Delights. Garden of Earthly Delights. It was just a wonderful book. Which book was that? An Exercise in Madness, uh, Leap. <laughs> Leap, in, in your book, Leap. And I just highly recommend it. And so you're staring at that painting, and, and you bring it up again in the context of grief. What did you find in that painting? Well, the the brightest point in Hieronymus Bosch's triptych of the Garden of Earthly Delights is in hell. 
it's it's like Blake, you know, tiger, tiger, burning bright. Um, it's it's the flames, and you know. So that's the grief, isn't it? Where it's burning bright. It's there's. I think it's there's our something attention. energetic yeah, there. I think you're right. You know, where we choose to place our attention, um, whether it's grief, whether it's love, whether it's our work, um, and certainly, you know, having now every day, you know, m- mourning my brother, um, wondering what we could have done, um, one, you know, realizing what we didn't do. Um, I feel that that window flaming in my own heart. But I I think, how to say this, Justine, you know, you write a book from the inside out, but you don't really know what the book is about. And in many ways, I thought this book was about um, this moment in time. And, um, you know, there's some angry pieces in this book. There's some dark pieces in this book. But I... Now that I've lived with this book for a few months, I think this book is about healing. I think it goes back to Willie. You know, it can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. And Jonah Yellowman, who's a, a holy person and a medicine person that lives in Navajo, in Navajo country in Monument Valley, he said to me not long ago, we have to go deeper. We have to go deeper. And so what does that mean, Justine? You know, how do we go deeper in all aspects of our lives? And I think the most important thing in this book for me was really being able to write on paper what that was like to go with my brother Hank, um, who's our youngest brother, and face the commitment we made to Dan to see him through his cremation. That was not something I thought I could bear. And in fact, I was not prepared to do that. But my youngest brother was. And of course, I stayed with him. And of course, we went through that together. And it changed me. Yes. There was something so powerful about, you know, lifting your brother's body into the flames. True enough. True enough. Thank you so much for sharing that in the book in such detail. I was weeping throughout that part. I just, uh, well, I weeped in many parts. I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams. She is the author of Erosion Essays of Undoing. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams, and she is the author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing. And Terry, I'm just reminded as we're talking about grief and, and talking about your brother and that that the, just the the way we we hold that and have to hold that and our love and our grief and and our courage to to send one off so completely. I mean, to witness the beauty of someone like Mr. Rabe in a black suit with welding gloves open the doors of the retort and see your brother's body flaming. Um, I mean, his his rib cage, his arms looked. His bones, they looked like white prayer flags blowing in the breeze. I mean, he looked like Icarus um, and resembled the very eagles and hawks that he banded, which was his passion. And then to watch Mr. Rabe rake the bones, gather the bones, separate the bones. And when he left, my brother and I feeling the heat of our brother's life from those bones. And when I asked my youngest brother, Hank, what are you thinking? He looked at me and said, probably the same thing you're thinking. Are these coyote, rabbit, or raven's bones? The same piles of bones bleached on the desert that we as children had seen a thousand times. There is no hierarchy in death. There's only bones, bones, ash, breath, air. You know, to me, that's, that's the beauty, the beauty of, of the full circle of life. And who benefits when, we, when we're not able to witness that? And I'm so grateful for my youngest brother's courage. I would have chosen not to do that. I would have looked away. Right. But what I didn't realize was the healing that comes by, by staring it down, yes. by embracing that, by feeling the last heat of your brother's body. And then remembering at the end, you know, when we carried his ashes away in a cardboard box to my father's home to tell him what we had witnessed we realized they weighed eight pounds, seven ounces, the same weight of my brother's birth, the same weight of a gallon of water in the desert. You're talking about being immersed in walking on the earth, actually living it, traveling it, having conversations with nature. And that just reminds me of mm. an experience you had. You were invited to a very powerful ceremony. Jonah. Jonah. Jonah Yellowman, who is a dear friend, had invited um, Fuzzle Sheikh and I, who'd been doing work with him and with the community, to come to one of the Yebache ceremonies, which I had never been to. It was a great honor. And we went. It was a starlit sky. It was um, very near the spring equinox, freezing cold, beautiful starstruck night. And it was, all I can tell you, it was a privilege to witness what we witnessed. And Jonah talked to us about what we would see. And it had everything to do with bluebirds, the bluebird people. And I say this hesitantly and respectfully, but... After we witnessed this for many, many hours until close to dawn, um, I'm going to read you this one paragraph. He said, well, I'm explaining this. We left the gathering in the wee hours of the morning, and Jonah drove us back to where we were staying. He got out of his truck and walked us to our rooms, 
With the Pleiades above us, he turned to me and said, Now you have a story to tell. But this is not mine to tell, I said. You will find it, the story that is yours. And I think, you know, we're very mindful, as we should be, of cultural appropriation. What is ours? What is not? What do we witness? What do we keep quiet? What do we share? And it was very clear that Jonah said, you will find your story connected to what you have witnessed. What could that be? Justine, would you believe me when Fuzzle and I drove back to Castle Valley, where Brooke was, my husband, we literally got out of the car. We heard this bird song. We looked up, and there were two bluebirds. And Fuzzle and I just looked at each other. Brooke came out, and he said, look, this is the first day the bluebirds have arrived. It didn't end there. I mean, I just had chills. We went in. We were making breakfast. Um, Brooke left. Fuzzle and I remained. For some reason, I felt moved to go to the back corner of our house. I went into our bedroom. There was a bluebird in the corner that had flown into the house. I knelt down, picked up the bluebird into my hands. Literally, this bluebird walked into my hands. I put my, my hands very lightly over its back. I walked into the living room. I said, Fuzzle. He walked in. He saw what was in my hand. He saw the bluebird, the bluebird looking at us. He opened the door. We walked outside. I opened my hands. The bluebird stayed in my hands. A flock of bluebirds circled the house. I lifted up my hands. The bluebird flew into the flock. Who knows the reach of ceremony? What is your story? What is my story? What is our story together? To me, the question that I hold is, is earth not enough? Is earth not enough? And how do we place our hands on the earth and remember where the source of our power lies? Day in, day out, these are my devotions. Terry, you often talk about how you are at least open to being aware of a conversation beyond human voices that's available to us. You talk about nature being reciprocal. Somewhere in your book, you talk about how we, we live in a kind of virtual world. We, we live where, where a mouse is something we move around on, on a table. And, and, uh, and an apple is no longer a, food, a, but apple a is, machine yeah, right, that we all are addicted exactly. to. Exactly. And, and you talk about how, how we um, live in, in our rooms. You, you have made a statement somewhere along the line about cynicism only comes from air-conditioned rooms. And we, we, we're in these rooms that we live in with walls, and we're very big in these rooms. And we're all complicit. And we're know? all complicit in that. Yeah. But when you get out into wilderness or into spaces of And wild, I think our own home ground, wherever I, that is, you know, I'm, I'm so moved by people's sense of place. And it may not be where they live. It may be where their mind goes in meditation. It may be where they return to. It may be a national park. But, you know, I think what we are coming to learn, what Native people have always known, and what science is now corroborating, 
is the earth is alive. Castleton Tower, Justine, if we were sitting on our porch with cups of tea and looked to the east, there is a 400-foot monolith made of Wingate sandstone. Four geologists from the University of Utah have just determined that Castleton Tower has a pulse. Rock has a voice. Stone is alive. And they placed a seismometer at the base of Castleton Tower, employed two climbers that placed another seismometer at the top. And what they heard was a heartbeat. A heartbeat that registers in tandem with our own. Castleton Tower has a pulse. We have a pulse. The Earth has a pulse. The Earth's pulse is in our hands. How can we not respond? And this rock is not static. It is not static. You know, many of us, as they say in their report, see it as a stoic presence. It is alive. It registers waves. Waves, gravity, pulls, you know, bubbling lava. I mean, it registers even our own heartbeat. That's how porous and I don't even have the language. But, you know, if we begin to see the world that way, will our actions take on a different kind of import? I wonder about that. You know, and I just, I mean, one of the things my brother said before he died was, can I love myself enough to change? You know, can we love ourselves enough to change, and what does that look like? Again, those echoes, it can no longer be about anger, it has to be about healing. How do we go deeper? We are eroding and evolving at once. And we must have those conversations beyond our limited tribe. I I think you you mentioned something about people... um, we are authors of our own certitude, is yeah, what you say. Yeah. And we hear that from the other. Oh, they're, they're, they're so certain about that. But what am I so certain about? Exactly. Exactly. So it's your... I mean, my brother said that to me the other, um, you know, around our table at Thanksgiving. I was very certain of what I was saying, you know, about our current administration. And he, he just said, Terry, are you happy there? How are you feeling right now? You know, my blood pressure was skyrocketing, you know, just... (laughs) And again, he just brought me back into that place of communion and communication. And again, how do we go deeper? And it's not... I mean, yes, it's about Donald Trump. It's not about Donald Trump. I mean, this is a symptom. We're all a symptom of, of a world, you know, that we're creating and moving too fast. How do we slow down? How do we breathe? How do we breathe? I love you. I love you. And you wrapped me in owl feathers. Oh, oh, wonderful. You just look gorgeous in owl feathers. I've been here. Thank you so much, Terry. I've been here with Terry Tempest-Williams, and she is the author of many books, including Erosion, Essays of Becoming... Is it Belonging? It's all the same. (laughs) Essays of undoing. And I think that's it, that our undoing is our becoming. Beautifully said. Thank you. And if you want to know more about our work, you can go to our website, coyoteclan.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3691. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.